Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Catherine J. Fraser, author of A Journey, A Reckoning and a Miracle. Catherine, welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Maggie. Now, it, it, it is a little bit later than we originally thought. We had a few technical difficulties earlier, but um, here we are. Before we begin chatting, um, can I get you to read a little bit from A Journey, of Reckoning, and a Miracle, just to give listeners a sense of the book? Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, this is on starts on page 72, which is in the first third of the book still, and it's uh, one of uh, George W. Bush's nightmares uh, he's having uh, with a librarian and Mother Nature. So it starts off, um, the librarian put on her glasses and unfolded the piece of paper. These are all good books, and many of them you probably have right here. The others you can order off the Internet or get from the library. A small paperback appeared in her hands. First, I suggest All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remarque, a book about World War I. It's written from the perspective of a German infantryman and is probably one of the best books ever about the reality of war. George had heard of this one but hadn't read it. Mother Nature hadn't read the book either, but she didn't have to, because like death, she'd been there, as she had for every war. Every man, because it usually is a man, should read this book before he starts a war. This is the book you should have read at least ten times before deciding to go to war in Iraq, she said. George smirked and folded his arms over his chest. He really didn't want to be reminded of Iraq by Mother Nature. He still felt he'd made the right decision to order the military into Baghdad or Babylon, as he preferred to think of that biblical land. Mother Nature was starting to feel irritated. The flowers at her feet put their leaves over their petal faces. All life is born to die, brother. I know that better than anyone. But I hate wasted lives. People killed in an unnecessary war is a horrible waste. If I ruled the world, and she smiled because in a way she did, although she couldn't control these crazy humans half the time. When leaders decided to go to war, I would send them, not their armies. So with the Iraq War, you could have picked, let's say, three of your top advisors, perhaps Dick, Donald, and Condi. And Saddam could have picked his three top aides, probably his two sons and the red-haired commander who's still on the loose. Then you two and your entourages go fight it out, no holes barred, kind of like that Fight Club movie with sexy Brad Pitt and even sexier Edward Norton. Sizzling. Mother Nature wolf whistled. She liked that movie a lot as it confirmed her views of humanity. Also, she thought George might have seen that film. George was in pretty good physical shape, but he hadn't been in a fight in years. He found it impossible to envision Condi scuffling with Uday, but he actually liked the thought of himself wrestling Saddam Hussein. A high noon gunfight might even be better, but he'd have to practice shooting first. Suddenly he shook his head. What was he thinking? That was a ridiculous idea. Instead of a war, to have some sort of all-star wrestling match between two leaders and their chief advisors? Mother Nature and George, both with their hands on their hips, stared defiantly at each other. The librarian quietly said, Sir, please just read All Quiet on the Western Front. Think about the soldiers in that book. Imagine what they would have wanted. 
Imagine what their families would have wanted. Imagine what the families of those who died would have wanted. Imagine what the wounded would have wanted. Imagine yourself in their shoes. George had a sudden image of boots, all the boots of the dead soldiers from the Iraq War. Imagining, he shuddered. Next, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. It mysteriously appeared in her hand. Now this is a really good book, one of the classics of the 20th century. The librarian looked over her glasses at George. Vonnegut's book takes place in World War II, and it's about the firebombing of Dresden, which happened in February 1945. The city was filled with civilians and the war wounded. The British bombed Dresden, and the firestorm that erupted killed half a million people. It's probably the worst single massacre in history. Kurt Vonnegut was a young American soldier who'd been captured by the Germans and could have died in the firestorm, but he lived as he'd been ordered into a fireproof slaughterhouse. As a POW, the Germans forced him and others to bury the bodies which had been burned and dismembered by the fire. Kurt was never the same again. He started writing after he returned from the war, slowly putting into words what he'd seen and experienced, finally pouring the whole thing into the novel. His main character, Billy Pilgrim, had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Probably Kurt Vonnegut had PTSD, too. How could he not? How could anyone not after such an experience? The librarian and Mother Nature regarded George. Could he imagine being a young Kurt Vonnegut, a young soldier, a prisoner, forced to look at, dig up, and rebury the corpses of burned-up, mutilated old men, women, children, and babies, and do this day after day after day? George had only been a three-year-old in 1945. If his family had been living in Dresden then, he and his mother might have been among the thousands who died in that burning inferno. Or if they had lived, they might have had PTSD for the rest of their lives. The librarian continued, Imagining yourself as someone else, that's what great literature does. It puts you into the lives of the characters, makes you feel what it would have been like to be them, and then changes you forever. So I'll, I'll stop there. It must have been immensely satisfying to um, take the role of a librarian and hand George Bush some books that you thought he ought to read. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I think most of the librarian, many of the librarians, probably all over the world, uh, wish that they could have had a conversation like that uh, with him. And in part, I, I modeled this a little bit on a friend of mine who uh, was a librarian at the time, uh, working in a uh, bilingual library in California. And I think she would have loved to have done that. But other librarians probably had that same thought. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about Bush the character. How, how closely do you think he relates to, I guess, the, the real Bush that's always in the reader's mind as they're reading this. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, depends on what your political viewpoint is, um, what kind of image you come to this book with, because if you were against him, you have that sort of image. If you were one of his supporters, you have a completely different uh, image. And, um, you know, it's probably pretty easy to see <laughs> what my perspective is um, on him. I started out writing this book... Um, be, mainly because of my concern uh, for the victims of an unnecessary war and 
because I believed what George Bush said about his religious beliefs that he heard from God and the religious beliefs guided his decisions, I thought that when he left office he might start to reflect on what he'd done and might begin to have some doubts and maybe learn something. Um, There's something from Ecclesiastes that says uh, wisdom is found in the house of suffering. And so I use that idea and some of my knowledge as a psychiatrist about people with PTSD to kind of create these nightmares and daymares that I had him have. But it really comes from his his religious beliefs. If I didn't think he was a religious person, I don't think I could have written this book. And in a way, it comes from my own um, spiritual beliefs, too, in a sense of trying to have compassion for him, which, um, like some of the readers, thought that I wasn't hard enough on him, and other people thought that I was too hard on him. Um, I did have one friend who wrote to me just really recently. I'm reading the book, and she said, I have to say the George parts are so accurate, I find them hard to read. Um, And, of course, she was somebody who did not support him, but she's also a person who's very, um, her Catholic religious beliefs are very important to her. So, um, again, I think it depends what kind of perspective a person has, but uh, it was very hard for me to write this as a completely neutral person, which might have been wonderful if I could have done that. Um, There was one person who said that, she thought I took the perspective of uh, Kuan Yin, in a sense, the, one of the Buddhist um, goddesses of compassion. Um, but she was also a person who was very anti-Bush. So, again, I think it depends where you're coming from, um, uh, you know, writing about him. And I, I don't know. Maybe I don't know if there's anybody who's out there who's totally neutral. I don't think I've ever talked to anyone like that. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because you've got you've got such a public fi- um, figurehead, really, in this book. And I guess anybody who comes to the book will come in with, you know, even even people who don't live in the U.S. will come in with a very strong perspective on the real life character that your fictional character is based on. So I suppose were you conscious when you were writing that this was going to be, you know, an issue for you that that readers would come in all with very differing sorts of perspectives. Well, it really the book really started out almost like a form of therapy for myself because I was so distressed over the Iraq war number 1 and then two over the 2004 election because I thought people would get it and vote him and his cohort out of office but they didn't and I thought that was just appalling and so I felt very depressed about the whole thing and again started out almost as a form of therapy so it wasn't really written thinking initially about an audience uh, in a way. But what happened was that the other characters kind of appeared and then it became a story. And then I thought, well, I might have actually have a novel here. I had This is my first novel that I've gotten published, my first novel I've written, actually. <laughs> so my other things that I'd written that were creative, one was a short story um, after a divorce I had in 1992, and the other was the beginning of a story, uh, a novel set in... Um, 2001 and 1901 that's partially based on a a relative of mine Um, and that was a novel that had to do with wanting to find a home so I think at least the creative things that I've done have been written out of uh, strong feelings about something and distress and then writing it which feels good and again this seemed to morph into a complete novel and the other characters appeared and then I realized that I actually had a a story that maybe other people would want to would want to read but I, I think in any future novel that I wrote, 
right. I don't think I would have one of the major characters be a real person. Um, this is a little bit different. I was just completely drawn into the story, and I, I had to stop writing other things that I was working on in order to, you know, work on this one. Um, sure. Were you were you worried at all about um, libel? Have you had any well, difficulties with that? Um, well, mostly people said as long as you put that this is a fictional character, and that uh, I actually the disclaimer I put in the book was. Um, recognizable characters, locations, and incidents are fictionalized. This is the work of the imagination. Um, a few people said, would you worry about that? But when you think about all the things that were written about George Bush, and he is certainly one of the most public figures you know, anywhere, I think about the movies made about him, uh, W, or uh, the, the recent uh, Will Ferrell show that was on Broadway. I mean, people have written far worse things <laughs> than what I've written about him. But I do have that disclaimer that this is a fictionalized uh, character and it is a work of the imagination, which it is. Sure. Um, but when I mentioned um, my book, actually I, I, w I was able to get an endorsement from Mark Vonnegut, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's son. And when I first wrote to him about this, um, he said he couldn't, he just couldn't imagine an apologetic George Bush. But he did agree to look at the manuscript. And then when he read through it, he said, "Oh, I can see what you did here. And this is, book is really optimistic and you know, still." Maybe a bit improbable, but but not impossible. And you know, I guess I've had different experiences in life that make me feel that you know different things can be possible. And um, I, I take you know kind of note of people like uh, Robert McNamara in the movie The Fog of War, where he described his you know apologizing really for his role in the Vietnam War. Um, and there's a man called uh, John Perkins who wrote a, a book called. Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and he was somebody that would go into Latin American countries, I don't know if it was in the 70s or the 80s, but helped destabilize them. And um, he had some kind of turnaround, spiritual awakening, and he completely renounced that type of work. He wrote this book, and then he actually does you know, work with shamans now, dream work uh, with people. I mean, <laughs> sort of about as far away as a person could get from you know, destroying the economies of some of these countries. Um, and even just in the news the other day, um, Lieutenant Cowley, you know, the man who was involved with the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, he apparently apologized publicly at a, a Kiwanis Club meeting and said something about, you know, that not a day goes by that he doesn't have remorse for what he did and, you know, acknowledging that. So, you know, you don't hear it too often with um, figures in the United States, but, you know, People can say they're sorry, and to me that's, well, it would be obviously better if they hadn't done the, the bad thing in the first place, but it's better than not acknowledging what you've done. And, I mean, even in Australia, you know, I was so impressed with the National Sorry Day um, mm -hmm. when Kevin Rudd came in, and other people must have supported him on that. But, you know, I thought, wow, that is fantastic. Uh, but, you know, could we ever have a National Sorry Day in the United States? And <laughs> I I don't know. That would be a big deal. There's some people that, you know, you listen to the talk radio shows and, you know, they think the U.S. is the most fantastic, unbelievable, great place that's ever existed and ever will exist, and they can't see that anything's wrong with it. And, you know, if you don't have that, you know, re capacity to reflect, you know, of course you couldn't get to the point of apology. But, again, with somebody like George Bush, I feel like there's a religious aspect to him that wouldn't be there, for example, in Dick Cheney, uh, you know, or some of the other people that were in the administration. 
Yes, your fictional dick's not particularly um, <laughs> redeemable, is he? <laughs> <laughs> no, but look what he's doing. I mean, it's sort of like every time he opens his mouth since he's left office, he's, to me and many other people, still being as offensive as he was, you know, when he was in office. So um, he, do- he doesn't seem like the kind of person who would change. Um, but you never know. Maybe he will. Maybe something will happen with him, and <laughs> and he'll start to realize that, you know, the main thing for him was, you know, advocating, you know, torture, which, again, to me and many other people was just abhorrent, and, you know, it doesn't work. That's the other thing. You know, if you're just looking at it from things from a practical viewpoint, then I think that's why the um, the FBI didn't want to be involved in any of these interrogations once they started, you know, crossing the line over into torture, you know, because they knew it was wrong, but they also knew it didn't work. This was not the way to get good information, you know, from people that you captured. So. Now, have you had any response from any officials in Washington? Um, <laughs> oh, that's that's great. I wish I wish I would. Um, I've been thinking actually about sending a copy of my book to um, to Bill Richardson, who is you know the governor here in New Mexico, because I have a little little cameo of appearance in there with him and uh, his work that he did with the North Koreans, because he seems to have some kind of um, way of working with them or dealing with them that they seem to listen to him and you know I feel like people like that could possibly be part of averting you know nuclear uh, ex- uh weaponry and you know that that sort of thing that the North Koreans might be prone to do but um I no I haven't had any official um recognition you know in that way I hope I hope people would you know read the book and I guess my family in Australia keeps asking me are you going to send a copy to President Obama so, um, but what I do have set up is a book signing at the Southern Methodist University bookstore in Dallas, Texas, at the end of October. And SMU campus, of course, is the one where George W. Bush is going to have his presidential library. And he does read the Dallas Morning News, according to some things I read. So I am hoping to get something in the, that paper. Maybe he'll read about the book signing, and you never know. Maybe he'll read about this and think about coming down to talk with me. So. It would certainly make a good publicity photo, anyway. It sure would. It certainly would. And then I would, then I would have my opportunity to, you know, um, give him my idea that I really think he should donate his ranch to the um, Veterans Administration. Uh, that's that works with uh, wounded soldiers, uh, so that they could go there as a place for R and R. And I think that would be like a step in the right direction, you know, and a sacrifice that he could make because I do think he genuinely loves his ranch, but. You know, he could give it over to people who could possibly, you know, enjoy it and get something from it. Sure. Now, um, you've used fiction rather than nonfiction as a way to, uh, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that this book is, you know, it's very much about the message that it, it's presenting. What, why did you choose fiction? I mean, do you, do you feel that fiction is, you know, is more powerful as a way of creating, that, you know, that human beings need story to change? Mm-hmm. Well, I do think that that's true, and um, for myself, I mean, I love fiction. I, if anything, I probably read more fiction than I do, certainly the nonfiction books in general, and maybe as much as I do for some of my psychiatry work. But I've always loved books and stories, and I mean, I think obviously fiction can tell truth sometimes in the way that um, even nonfictions can't. But um, you know, I I I wanted something that was potentially entertaining and reachable to more people that might than might read the nonfictions. You know, I've got, you know, stacks of book here books here written by, you know, great journalists and 
people that have really looked into the details, in, in particular to do with the Iraq War, but a lot of other things since 9-11 here. And these are such well-written books, um, you know, Seymour Hersh and uh, Thomas um, Ricks, and I've uh, got a book here by Michael Lerner, who's a rabbi, and you know he's written about the changes we have in the country. Um, here's one by a, a psychiatrist um, uh, called Bush's Brain. Uh, well, actually, that one's about Karl Rove more than Bush, but I've got another one in here somewhere about a psychiatrist, sort of psycho- psychoanalyst who wrote about Bush. But I wanted to do something different and wanted to write also about politics and religion, in a sense, with the backdrop of the last eight years. And I hadn't really seen any books that covered those two topics together in a entertaining, you know, fiction, uh, work of fiction. Um, now I'm finding out that apparently nonfictions, um, you know, sell better and it's maybe easier to get interviews on shows like um, the Colbert Report and um, the John Stewart Show, which are big comedy news shows in the United States. I don't know if they're seen in Australia or not, but um, those are the shows that good nonfiction writers really want to be on if they want to promote their books, but apparently they don't take any fiction writers, and that's disappointing to me. <laughs> I guess I think that there's some... I do have a lot of you know, factual material in my book, and again, sort of where you're pushing the envelope on you know, putting something out there that a person might respond to and then my fiction might turn into nonfiction. I guess that's sort of one of my one of my hopes for it. Some people might, might say that's just a total delusion or a fantasy, but um, you never know when you put an idea out there. What what ends up happening with it? Sure. And I suppose you know, with fiction, we're looking at truth rather than facts, which aren't necessarily the same things. Right. Or the lie that tells a greater truth, as as I said. So um, tell me just, there are other stories in the book, of course. Bush isn't the only one. Um, talk to me a little bit about the PTSD, because that's a, it's a real backdrop. Do you, do you see a lot of that in your work, and was that also um, a part of the story you wanted to tell? Sure. That was one of my concerns, first with the war, and partly from my work as a psychiatrist. I have worked in a veterans hospital in um, Texas in the early 90s, and then other points in my career in training, usually medical students work in veterans hospitals, so worked with a lot of Vietnam era veterans, and I could see that many of them were only partially treated, or you know, people were still showing up that had been homeless for years. And and I thought this is ridiculous to have what I perceive as an unnecessary war. And then of course we're going to generate even more of these um, uh, veterans with these kind of problems. And it's or it is happening. I mean, they they have huge number of suicides that are happening. Um, lots of homeless Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans here. Um, lots of substance abuse. Uh, violence, um, divorces, all sorts of things. You know, again, not unexpected. You know, when you have a war, but it's one of the reasons why people should be extremely sure before they start a war. You know, you, you got to be ready to take care of all the people. Then, um, and you know, I'm just talking about people here. What about all the people in Iraq? I mean, I think they must have, you know, millions of people with post-traumatic stress disorder in addition to all the injuries and you know, deaths and things that they've had, and who knows what kind of treatment they have over there. But um, in my book, I mostly concentrated on our veterans, really because I don't have a lot of knowledge or way of getting more factual information about, you know, people in Iraq, but I do feel for them too. But in my book, I had um, uh, a group of 
what were suicidal uh, veterans um they had been in in my my novel they'd been in a VA program that they was was really helpful to them but then the, the funding got cut and they got kicked out and then they decided to solve their problems by killing themselves and again this was a f- fiction uh, it would be very unusual to have a huge group of people decide to do that but that's what i had happen here although one of the veterans uh, wanted to stop them, and then he m- runs into one of my other main characters and some other people that are with her, and then they end up preventing these veterans from killing themselves. And then the veterans go on and you know start to have a sweat lodge, and then there's some other things that happen to them in the book. But um, in a way, uh, I wanted to put that idea out there that uh, you know there needs to be enough money put into treatment programs, and I think it would be kind of unlikely to start a treatment program and have to kick the patients out in the middle of it but you know stranger things have happened here and there certainly doesn't there doesn't seem to be as as much money put into treatment as there should be uh, although it's improving but there's still long waits for veterans to get treatment and and then many of them like with the Vietnam era may be kind of afraid to go to the VA hospitals you know because they're feeling so paranoid about their experience in the military um but my current practice, I work at a medical school, and I have a few veterans from other wars, but not this current war. I do have some uh, mothers of soldiers and wives of soldiers, relatives that have been in Iraq, and so I, I see the reverberation of the effects on them. Uh, luckily for my particular patients, their loved ones have come back, you know, physically and apparently emotionally intact too. So I'm glad, you know, for that. But I know there's plenty of others that haven't. Um, and all this could have been, been anticipated, in my opinion. Um, so, sure. And have, do you have you had much feedback from your patients and, and I guess colleagues as well? Um, well, actually, I've had good feedback from my colleagues for the most part. I actually didn't talk about my writing very much until pretty recently, partly because I was told if you talk too much about a story, you might not write it; it'll get talked to death. Um, and partly because it is a very new thing in a different thing for uh, a psychiatrist on a medical school faculty to write a novel, and particularly about a novel that includes politics and religion. So I wasn't sure how it would be taken there, but I had enough feedback from a few other people that were positive, and so I kept on with it. And um, the most colleagues have really liked it. Many of them came to a big book signing I had a couple of weeks ago at a Barnes & Noble in Albuquerque, and a lot of other people heard um, a local radio station with KUNM where I did an interview on a show called Women's Focus. A lot of people heard that interview. And I got a nice write-up in the Albuquerque Journal. So I've gotten a lot of good local publicity, and people seem to be responding. Um, again, I, may, I mean, it may not be totally positive. When people First, they're enthusiastic that you've written a novel, but then sometimes I've noticed when I talk to a few people, particularly at maybe my son's Boy Scout meetings, um, where most of the people there are Republican, um, you know, then they you can see them kind of retreating in their eyes. <laughs> so, but I do have, um, I have a father-in-law who is, um, he is a Naval Academy graduate and lifelong Republican. Would have He voted for Bush both times, voted for McCain in the last election. And he read the book and he said, well, he didn't agree with the politics. He did appreciate that I was showing concern for veterans and he liked the book the aspects of the book that had to do with that. So, um, And I don't think he would have said that unless he genuinely felt it. So, you know, that's kind of a common ground that I feel like I could have with 
almost anybody in in the United States, you know, because everybody here supports veterans. Um, sure. Uh, and know. irrespective of the politics, do you feel as well that as a writer, you've kind of you've now come out of the closet. I mean, you've got something published, and you know, it's big. It's a full scale novel. Um, you, you know, you can't kind of potter around anymore. You really, <laughs> you're right. out there. Yeah. No, I'm I'm definitely. I've, gone into I guess a different kind of dimension in my life or a different chapter in my life um now I feel like I, I mean I can say I am a writer I have written a book and I I have other ideas for other books that I want to write and uh they might not they this might end up being the most controversial book that I write the other ones um one is like I said a story that takes place in 2001 and ni- 1901 and really explores more the life of women the cha- in those two eras how they different they are and another one is a historical novel based on the lives of my grandparents who were they were actually in the British intelligence service in India and China during World War II and I think I could write a pretty good adventure story kind of take off on their lives and another one actually has to do with um a true murder that happened in Melbourne that I'd like to write about um because I think there's certain elements of that that are very interesting so um again those are just some ideas I have for other novels, um, but n- not in more the political sense. So, um, but I, but yes, I am out there as a writer now, and I, I, I feel good about it. And so far, I haven't been asked to leave my employment <laughs> yet. Um, but I have, I have <laughs> or, been careful. Or lo- loaded up with work. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sometimes I think, or loaded up with work on the grounds that you must have a lot of time on your hands. <laughs> well, they know that I work part time. I do work part time since I've had my uh, oldest son who's t- now 12 but with this book I wrote it early in the morning I'd wake up at 4 in the morning and I'd start writing for an hour and a half or so and then need to get ready for work and get the kids to school and so on and um, I, you know if I ever had to justify it I'd say well there's no work that I could be doing at work at 4 in the morning you know it's nice quiet time in my computer at home um, but anyway uh, I I have said if I, if I end up saying where I actually work I've said that my writing um, does not represent, you know, the institution that I work for, um, you know, because that's sort of a, as a disclaimer, and it doesn't, you know, it's 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 something that came from me that I felt really passionate about and wanted to get out there, and you know, I will say for anybody who has an idea that they feel that strongly about and they have an inclination to write, that it's really worth just following that, you know, and doing it because, I mean, my book took me four years from the day I started writing to when I actually held it in hand and it's just a wonderful feeling to you know hold your own book in your hand and you know realize well you've contributed in your little way to the you know the world of books you know that's out there so and I'm glad you know I've gotten some positive feedback from people um including some of my friends and family in Australia so I feel good about that too yeah. Oh, that's great look we're just about out of time um before I say goodbye can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about the book? Just give us the URL for the uh, website. Sure, yeah, it's www.jrmstory.com jrmstory.com and the book is available on Amazon or you could buy it from a local bookseller to order there. Wonderful. All right, thank you very much for coming by, Catherine. Thank you, Maggie. Great to talk with you. Now, our next guest on the show is Andrew Thelander, who will be dropping by to talk to us about his novel, Last Birds. We'll see you then. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.